Hello everyone, welcome to A Reason for Hope. Glad you're joining us today. A Reason for Hope, in case it's your first time, is an hour-long live broadcast which is guided by your questions on the Bible. We're on multiple online platforms live with you. You can send in your questions and we have some guests here who love the Lord and love the Word and love to answer your questions as they come in. Uh, my name is Dave Robson, I'm your host today. I'll be on all those platforms with you as your questions come in. It could be a question on a, a verse or passage of scripture that you'd like explained a little more. Maybe even something you're going through in your life, you'd like a biblical perspective. What does the Bible say about your circumstances or lifestyle or choices, those kind of things. Maybe even other religions as they uh, uh, compare to Christianity. Anything along those lines, as long as you know uh, that the answers are going to come from the Word, and as long as it's an honest and sincere question, they are all fair game. Like I say, you can send them in through multiple online platforms. I'll be going over those in just a moment. So I'm happy to be your host with you today, fielding those questions as they come on in with us today. We have Bo Willett and we have Sean Richards with us. How are you guys doing? Look at that team. And we're all in blue again. It's happened twice Different now. Different shades of it. Different shades of blue, but yeah. blue nonetheless. Kind of a blue day. But thank lengths you. Lengths of hair. Different lengths of hair. <laughs> yes. That's right. Yes, from one extreme to the other, I think. But um, you can't even tell that I got long hair. And you can't tell, no. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows what's under there? <laughs> Who knows? I'm going to leave it on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to take off this hat. up to the imagination. Still a mystery. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, thank you for being with us and making yourself available um, tonight, Bo and Sean. We're very grateful um, for you. As I mentioned, A Reason for Hope is a live broadcast Monday through Friday. We're with you those uh, weekdays there, live from 5 to 6 here in Tucson, Arizona, Mountain Standard Time. It's a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship. Uh, so if you keep that in mind when you're trying to find us on the different platforms, that will help you out. Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. Our website's a great home base for you, especially if you're uh, you know, boycotting social media or not on Facebook or some of those uh, other platforms. CalvaryChristianFellowship.com is a great home base if you go there. While you're there, you're welcome to check out our website. We have so many different events. Seems like now more than ever, we have different Bible studies and support groups and events coming up. We have a fall festival that we're just starting to organize. And of course, we're coming into Christmas, it seems, already. Um, so many things going on. Um, so have yeah. a click around there and you're more than welcome to come check us out, especially if you're in the Tucson area and you're looking for somewhere to fellowship. You're more than welcome to come along. But uh, for the purposes of tonight, that watch live tab right there, whenever we're live, we stream to this page. If you follow that link, or the direct link ccftucson.online.church. You can type that straight into your browser as well, ccftucson.online.church. We'll take you to that same page. You'll see a countdown to upcoming of uh, the next event we have and, and a schedule of upcoming events. But when we're live, as we are right now, you'll see the video there. You can sign in with a username and there's a chat function. I'll be right there with you, receiving your questions and comments uh, right there. So again, ccftucson.online.church or uh, calvarychristianfellowship.com will take you to that same link if you follow the uh, watch live uh, tab. We're on Facebook as well, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson on Facebook, facebook.com slash CCF Tucson. That's another way you can send your question in. Don't forget to like and share. We'd appreciate that if you've been blessed by the ministry. If you haven't been blessed by the ministry, then share it and maybe you'll find someone that is blessed by it. So either way, <laughs> I can share <laughs> would be a great thing to do. We have an app as well for your mobile device, whether it's an iPhone or Android or you know, iPad or uh, whatever on your mobile devices, you can take us with you right there in your little pocket. Uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson in your app store. Uh, also on Roku and Apple TV, we have a channel. So if you go to your uh, channel store, 
you can add us there, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, on Roku and Apple TV, and watch us on your big screen. Uh, we're on YouTube as well, of course. A Reason for Hope is the name of the channel. A Reason for Hope on YouTube. Uh, don't forget, once again, to, to uh, like and subscribe. And if you can uh, click on that notification bell, if you would like, you get a little notification when we're live, so you won't have to miss anything. Uh, it's a great place for archives as well. Anytime we've been live, it will archive there on that live tab. So if you missed the show, you can recap it there on YouTube. Our senior pastor here, uh, Pastor Scott Richards, he's not with us uh, today, but um, he is on Twitter. He's a Twitter Twitterer. So if you're on Twitter and you'd like to follow along with him, uh, he posts all kinds of stuff on there, some funny things and shenanigans, uh, but also commentary on uh, things happening in the world and in the news as it pertains to end times and uh, Bible, uh, biblical prophecy and that kind of thing. So follow along with uh, Scott Richards. His handle is Scott R4H. That's Scott, letter R number four, letter H on Twitter. Uh, we're on Rumble as well, not live on Rumble, but we post uh, videos, uh, archive videos for you there. So we have some extra content on Rumble if you're on that platform, a reason for hope, Bible Q&A. And our email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope spelled out at gmail.com. Uh, you can send your question there as well, of course, anytime. We'd love to hear from you. If you listen to us on the radio, we're glad that you are on Reach Radio or one of the other radio affiliates. But uh, keep in mind that you are listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded, so we're not live with you on the radio. But uh, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Uh, use that email address and we'll get to that question on the next show and consider joining us on one of the other live platforms when you can. If you're on your drive time, please drive safely and we are certainly glad that you're listening in and joining us today. Well, with all that being said, once again, send your questions in, get them in early. We'd love to parcel out the time. We're excited to see what questions are going to come in and where we're going to go yes. in the Word. We never... <laughs> we excited. <laughs> I was a little bit too excited. <laughs> what's going to come in? Well, we don't know. We don't know what's going to come in. Could be Let's a question see. on Let's marriage. Guess. Could Let's be... all guess. Let's okay. guess. Okay. Well, that's, not, that's kind of cheating because <laughs> if we guess and speak it out loud, people are going to just... Uh, and Sean, uh, don't fall off the screen. You're about ready. He's about almost ready to fall off the screen. He is, but I can get him on this one. So there's no escape. There's no escape for us. Is. There's a little bit too much of me and not enough of Sean, which, right. which is the way that it should be. <laughs> but would you like to pray for us? Yes, let's pray. That'd be great. Father, we thank you so much for the uh, fellowship. Thank you for uh, brothers and, and the sisters in Christ, and we thank you so much uh, for your body. Thank you for the encouragement that you give us through one another. We pray that our words would edify and build up, and Lord, as you tell us to do, to use our speech uh, in right ways. And so, Father, help us to do so in the, on the show. Um, uh, give us uh, uh, your words to share uh, from your scripture. Uh, we uh, just love you so much. Thank you so much for your love for us. Pray that you be with everybody who's listening and, and bless them in mm. Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks, bud. That's right. It's God's true. word from Scripture. That's what our aim is. <laughs> Not yes. our opinions, but um, what we got a lot God of them, says. <laughs> yeah, we do have a lot of them. <laughs> Hopefully based on the word and what's been shaped by that. But Well, we have a question to kick off with, a question from Holly. Thank you for your, your question. A question is, why does Isaiah 45, 7 say that God creates evil and calamity? Mm. That's a good question. Yeah, God it's of, a very good God question. Good and mm. Why would he create evil and calamity, or does he? 
Yeah, and obviously in any passage where they ask what's going on in verse 7, usually verses 1 through 6 might help. Um, It's an interesting flow of a conversation. For those of you who aren't familiar, the books of the Bible weren't divided up into chapters and verses until later on. That was to help out with citation. If we wanted to get to an idea or a prophecy or something specific for a quote, and you know, you're going to say, oh, I think it's like in the last two-thirds or so of Isaiah, that wouldn't really help in this format or any for that matter. So there is a benefit to it, but the downside of that is that when you think Isaiah 45, that that's the start of a whole new conversation. Whereas in most cases, if something new is going to start, they'll begin by clarifying it was at this time that this was spoken for this reason. So chapter 45 actually follows a very long conversation that's overviewing essentially what God was going to do in the future as far as Isaiah was concerned concerning the nation of Babylon. Israel had rejected uh, mercy from God for 400 years at this point with another 400 to go. And while they were living at the time of a righteous king, a, a godly king by the name of Hezekiah, there would be a a series of bad kings to follow that would ultimately lead them to Babylon in exile. Now, God clarifying that I'm going to use, ironically enough, Babel, the nation that literally established (laughs) the concept of idolatry, uh, Israel was going to go there for judgment would be the mental equivalent of, I'm going to send you to prison in Vegas for gambling. It didn't make a lot of sense, and that was uh, the question that a lot of the prophets had, Habakkuk in particular. But when Isaiah was told about Babylon, this was around the 8th century BC, he was told this before A, Babylon was even a legitimate military power. They had emissaries and stuff, and he was showing off the gold of the temple and so forth, and Isaiah told him, you shouldn't have done that. But the prophecies that followed after chapter 38 where this took place was clarifying when Babylon comes here, they're going to take you and this gold with them. But then he goes on to note that Babylon will not get away with murder either, that for the actions that they commit against my people, I'm going to raise up another individual who will judge them. And this is where chapter 45 starts. Thus says the Lord, this is verse 1, to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked paths straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, that's in tandem, the original name of Israel, my servant's sake, and Israel my elect. I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. So pausing already in verse 4, why is God making such a big deal about him calling him out by name. I can do that to anyone here in the room. I I call you out by name. That doesn't prove that I'm God. Hmm. Unless, of course, 8th century BC, Cyrus wouldn't be born for another 150 years. Hmm. 
let alone have a military campaign that someone could detail. (laughs) So when we cross-reference this with things like the Medo-Persian Chronicle, the Greek histories of Herodotus and so forth, uh, we're given a little bit of insight into what's being referred to by the gates of uh, bronze and the bars of iron. The reason why that's referenced is because that's actually how Cyrus the Great took over the city of Babylon. Babylon was a pinnacle of military fortification in the time, but what I guess its weakness was, was also a great source of strength. When you tried to besiege the city, the great river Euphrates flowed through it, and they had these iron bars to keep people from swimming through the canal while they could still get potable water for their crops and so forth. They couldn't be starved out in that sense. The city was so huge. So when Cyrus tried to besiege the city, everyone took it for granted. You can read in Daniel chapter 5, they hosted a party during siege conditions. Now, you don't generally uh, have an abundance of food waiting unless you are Babylon. That's how well established they were. And when Cyrus took it over, what he did was he built a series of dams to cut, basically lower the Euphrates River so they could cut through the gates and, of course, take over the city without much loss of blood except for the administrators. Again, you can read what happened to Belshazzar. But all that being said, what makes this interesting and why God is putting this as his credentials on the table to know that I'm not only anointing you but anointing you literally choosing you for the benefit of my people is because at that time Israel was living in captivity in Babylon when power would exchange hands to Cyrus he would be or rather his empire would be the ones who would see Israel brought back to the land that before they were even punished, God's explaining in detail all the ins and outs of how they're going to be forgiven. Now, this is where we get to the crux of your question in verse 5. I am the Lord, there is no other, there is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that you may, or that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. Note that. I make peace and create calamity. Some translations render that as evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Rain down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and bring them forth with salvation. Let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Now, in this passage, we're told two things. And if you understand Hebrew, especially poetry, but the Psalms in particular, and the Proverbs, you know they have a culture that lives and breathes contrasts. That if they're going to make a point, it's almost nine times out of ten going to be through a point of the lesser to the greater, even if they have to fictionalize a lesser to make the greater seem all that more significant. In this case, you have two examples of that. What do I mean? Well, he gives two series of contrasts. The Lord creates. That's the objective. In this case, he's doing what? He's creating a military victory for a man who's not even born yet. That's prophetic, right? That's interesting. That's significant. But in order to double down on that point, in this overview of Cyrus's military victory over Babylon, which wasn't a military threat yet, and the Medo-Persians hadn't even formed an alliance yet, let alone had a kingdom to spot it, it all came down to this. I create, or I, rather, let me read the passage directly, I form the light 
and create darkness. Now, just as a quick aside, I don't know how uh, up to snuff you guys are on your uh, radiology and uh, study of light waves and so forth. We've but been studying that quite a bit, haven't well. we? I, I you. consider myself an expert. Okay. I, I think is me and darkness, been getting together. Is <laughs> darkness a thing? Darkness is a thing. It is it? No. No, it isn't. No, it is the, the absence, absence of, of light. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. and yeah. even if we stay in the Bible, we don't even have to get into the study of light itself, right? In Genesis chapter 1, we're told that God said, let there be light, not let there be light and darkness. It yeah. notes that he divided the right. light from the darkness, but in the most literal sense possible, what's being said there, God established the distinction between the light and the not light. Right. Now, apply that to the second point. I create peace and cause calamity. Now, if you're going to translate it as evil, it makes the same point. What? That God's taking something that he establishes and is also being credited for the lesser thing, the not that thing. What's the opposite of peace? Calamity, evil, not the sort of conditions you want to live in. But the focus of the passage is what? God creates, God causes. In this context, it's what? Not a doctrine of God being responsible for all moral evil. That would be like God saying, as the definition of good himself, I create the not me. That's weird. And just like testing the, um, the interpretation with Genesis chapter 1, would it make sense for God to create evil in a literal doctrinal sense? The answer would be no. And we can reference that in the book of James, for instance, where it says God is light, and if there is no dark, or that's First uh, John, in him is no darkness at all. James says every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or yeah, shadow of turning. Yeah, he's not tempted by evil. Yeah, and that's, that's cross-referencing the point. So if that interpretation doesn't stick, what other option is there? Isaiah is using expressive language to drive home a point, and that's what? God causes, God creates, God's responsible in this chapter for what? Giving Cyrus a military victory, even though he's not born yet, that you would know that he is who he is, not the cause of all evil, but the only God who can speak of the future as though it hasn't happened. So if we get lost in the weeds of us, the second half, or third in this case, of a verse, we miss the point of emphasis Isaiah's making. Now, this is a great excuse me, great opportunity to test how we interpret the Bible. It's not wrong to take something figuratively or literally, but if it leads you to a conclusion, test that, because most people try to test the methods of their interpretations when both could be appropriate in different situations. But if you get lost in the weeds and say, because figurative works here, therefore it works everywhere, or because literal works here, therefore it works everywhere, there's going to be places you're going to be confused. So instead of challenging the interpretation method, challenge the conclusion. We do this with math. You don't challenge the formula, you challenge the what? Answer that you plugged into it, right? So if it's in fact the case that what? God creates evil. That flies in the face of a lot of clear statements that make that impossible. Just like God creating darkness, it's not a thing. But if, on the other hand, we go, okay, so if this is figurative, given the appropriate nature of this, what's the, pun intended, crux of the conversation? God creates. Not what he creates, but that he creates. And in this case, you start in verse 1, not in verse 7. Yeah, great.
Anything, Anything to talk to that bar? Um, I, I love, if you go to EnduringWord.com, um, you'll see some wonderful commentaries there by uh, David Guzik. And one of the things that he points out about this passage, which is actually a quote from another commentator, yeah. but it says, Isaiah's point is that there are not two gods or forces in heaven, one good and one bad, as in the dualistic yin and yang sense. Mm. So we've all, we've heard that in our culture, the yin and the yang, kind yeah. of this dualistic. There's a, a good God and then there's a bad God. And, and this was common in all of our ancestors, kind of how we looked at things. There was a, you know, good gods and there was bad gods. It was this dualistic idea. Mm. And so he points out that that uh, let me finish reading it. My phone kind of tapped out, but it says Cyrus was a Persian and Persians had a dualistic concept of God and the world. So their good God, they called Ahura Mazda. You know the car, Mazda? Yeah. I think that's where they get it. And the evil God, or I don't know. Araman, yeah. Yeah, interesting. And it says, uh, and the evil God, Angra Mania. That's, was the bad, that was the evil God. Mm. And so the former had created the light, the second, the darkness. So, you know, it, it, it goes along with what definitely the great breakdown you, you, you um, just laid out for us, Sean, and that Isaiah is definitely stressing that there's one God. Right. And this is the main point, is he's definitely um, deflating the idea of a dualistic God. And this is important for us as Christians that we don't get in this kind of dualistic, there's the creator of darkness and then there's a creator God of heaven. Mm. And I think in Christianity, we kind of tend to do that with Satan yeah. and God, right? Right. Where we kind of tend to look at Satan as like the creator of evil. Yeah, and they're equal, kind of equal forces. Yeah, you know, equal yeah. forces, yeah, yeah, very yin and yang-like, Yeah. you know? Yeah, we're not Zoroastrian. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it, it, I think we, we have such a pagan hangover a lot of us, you know, because we're from the world, you know, we're in this world. Uh, all of our ancestors, if you're not Jewish, you know, are pretty wrapped up in some pretty serious paganism, yep. you know, a lot of different gods and goddesses and things. Yep. And so uh, we tend to even bring that into our Christianity a, a bit with mm. the idea of Satan being the, you know, the evil Lord and, you know, yeah. uh, and just right. how you know, that kind of idea. Yeah, there's even Satanists. I mean, people that uh, see Satan as being maybe the, the god or the king of, uh, yeah. you know, the king of hell. fun. Yeah, yeah, but in a fun way, you know, yeah. like sex and the drugs and the rock and the yeah. roll and I'm going to go with him and that kind of thing, you know, which <laughs> right. is very distorted. Yeah, um, where you kind of, we tend to have, you know, you know how you can tell we have this dualistic idea in that um, we tend to think of hell as there's a king of hell. Yeah, right. You know, and, right. and the king is Satan and he's sitting on a throne and yep. he's, you know, we have this, you know, the old movie legend, you know, mm. uh, with Tom Cruise back in the day where mm. Satan's on a throne. And, you know, that's kind of what we think. Yeah. Uh, and we, we just don't quite get it that right. there's one God, one creator. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And, and so, he put his credentials on the table to give him reason to believe it. Right. Because so, Iranian culture, they lived and breathed Zoroastrianism around, in fact, the same time that the Hebrews were living there. Mm -hmm. But what is, which one's predicting the future? That's right. That's Our right, guy. Isaiah. Yeah. So, yeah, and this, <laughs> is, guy. this is why God's doing what he's doing, and this, that's why this prophecy is so important. Yeah, um, yeah. 
So hopefully that helps you. Uh, great question, though. It is a great question, Holly. Yep. Yeah, thank you for that. Hope that, that helps you. Thanks, guys, for laying that out for you. A uh, question from uh, Sui. Uh, I was at a Pentecostal Messianic Jewish service on Friday. I didn't know there was such a thing. It's pretty cool. Pentecostal Messianic Jewish service on Friday. And the pastor said that playing the uh, shofar uh, confuses the enemy. That's the trumpet, right? Yeah, the ram's um, horn. And uh, she also says we uh, we should still apply certain things today, even though we are not under the law, but under grace. Uh, what we do in the natural affects the spiritual. Is this true? So I guess there's two questions. One, does the, the shofar confuse the enemy? And also, should we be still applying some things from the law uh, to affect um, the uh the spiritual. Uh, the spiritual things, yeah. Or I guess should we still be living out the law and applying some of those things? So there's a few questions in there, depth to that, but thank you, Sue, for that question. Yeah, well, y you know how much of a love we have for people who teach everything but the Bible. Um, the idea of the shofar confusing the enemy, it's probably taken from a lot of Jewish tradition, like the Mishnah, but uh, when we're talking about mysticism and you know basically Hebrew mythology it's an interesting insight into how they would write basically the modern equivalent of comic books in the ancient world but when you let it have a place in your study of the Bible you get into some very weird places and we would strongly discourage you from that uh, when it comes to does the shofar confuse the enemy, I'm sure a rabbi or two may have commented that, but let's stick to what we both can agree on with Scripture. Uh, what's the nature of spiritual warfare? How do we actually buffet the enemy? How do we actually overcome him? Uh, this is the book of James chapter 4 and verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Uh, doesn't mention any ram's horns, doesn't mention any uh, uh, musical uh, interludes or anything of the sort. Worship can be a way we draw near to God through uh, praises and singing. But when it comes to, you know, this uh, ritualistic approach and saying, okay, now if we're going to exercise this person, we need to play the shofar and that'll get him off balance and stuff, none of that's in the Bible. So be very careful when people, I guess, bring those things up. But if you want to just get down to it the idea of what we do in the physical impacting the spiritual i'd say we both agree bo yes that is true but make sure that what you're doing is also biblical right yeah um absolutely um it, it's a it's a really un uh, cool kind of unique um idea you know because blowing the shofar is very biblical obviously and it's something that is found uh, throughout the life of Israel. So if you read your Bible, um, and, and a lot of people aren't familiar, say, with the Old Testament, but if you read, uh, you know, the Old Testament, you start at the beginning and you just keep going, you're going to come to military campaigns uh, that Israel is on. And you're going to uh, uh, find in there a, a book called the Book of Numbers, too. And it's a, it's a book of accountability and organization, of uh, the camps of Israel and how they camped around God, uh, God's yep. tent of meeting called the tabernacle. And this shofar had an interesting role 
Three, you, three rolls, right? Yeah, yeah. What are those three rolls? Well, one blast, two blast, three blast. They'd all communicate something, but notice never to the enemies of Israel, to the people of Israel. That's right. It would either be to announce a festival, mm -hmm. it would be to tell them they're going to move on, or it would be to tell them an enemy's attacking. Right. So, I don't, and, and again, rabbis can go off every other tangent till next uh, Sabbath, but the <laughs> idea is when a shofar was applied biblically, it had nothing to do with the enemy. It was communicating to God's people what they were doing. Yeah, and I was trying to think that maybe there's a place um, in, I'm trying to think, maybe Joshua or maybe, yeah. The Jericho maybe, thing. Uh, I was just thinking maybe there's a passage that I might have read where it talks about uh, a horn being blown and the people... Uh, uh, the enemies of Israel uh, hearing the noise and being confused. Mm. Um, and I was thinking that might have been something that happened during one of their military campaigns, if I remember. So I can't, I can't yeah. pinpoint it right now, but um, I remember that kind of event. Yeah. It sounds like one of the overviews in Deuteronomy, but it's the, yeah. the same point. There's promises to the people of Israel against physical enemies. Yeah that they would be victorious, that one would send a flight a hundred and ten a thousand. Yeah, it certainly wasn't. Uh, I, 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 cer I certainly concur with Sean. I don't, re there, I don't recall anything in the Torah, meaning the law. Yeah, first five books of the Bible. Yeah, the first five books of the Bible, that is a direct command, like to blow the shofar and the enemies will flee. That's that, like this rule, you know, mm. that's set in place. There might have been an incident where something like that took place. Uh, like I said, I can't recall the exact passage, maybe where the, the noise sounded and people were running around, the enemies of, uh, were running around in their camp confused, and Israel went and took them, and that, that kind of thing happened. With Gideon. Yeah, something like that, maybe. Um, but, um, you know, uh, but... You know, the idea of blowing the horn, stirring up the people of Israel, there's a New Testament passage that talks about um, waking up from our slumber, and it's found in the book of Romans. And, uh, you know, in a sense, that's kind of, if you will, the New Testament idea of being aware, mm -hmm. you know, waking up. You know, the shofar, when it was blown, Israel was to waken up was to, whoa, what's going on? How many horns are being blown? What, what does that mean? You know, that kind of thing. And Sean broke that down. One, two, three. Mm. You know, they would hear that. You know, in the New Testament, Paul says, who Paul's a rabbi, he understands the scriptures, and he says, hey, you know, awake from your slumber. Mm. You know, it's time for us to, in a sense, wake up. Mm. Um, listen to the you know you can certainly uh you know look at look at how maybe that that is a new testament uh in a sense uh fulfillment of the shofar mm. uh of the idea of the shofar being blown yeah it's maybe a, a, a you know just like there's other passages that are kind of similar where there's a new testament fulfillment of something that was done in the old testament um and you can look at that, um, but, it, it, you know, again, these things are, in a sense, we're reaching a little bit. You know, right. it doesn't specifically, <laughs> Paul doesn't specifically say, you know, wake up because the shofar is being blown. Right. Uh, but we do have passages where the trumpet's blown, the dead in Christ will rise. We, we kind of get the picture, yep. you know. Um, again, though, we have to uh, not, we, we got to be careful that we just don't get too wrapped up in a lot of this kind of 
interesting kind of symbolic reach way of interpreting the Bible, um, because then we start going into all different directions, and um, we start kind of making stuff up. Yeah, and we don't want that to be done in church. Yeah, so the, the second part of the question was what? It was these physical actions have a spiritual impact. Right. And also, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming because it was a Messianic Jewish um, yep. service, should we still apply certain things today, even though we're not under the law? So, yeah. you know, are there things we should still apply and, and follow in the law? Yeah, uh, just make sure they're in the law. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we certainly, you know, nothing's wrong with obedience to the law. Nothing wrong. Nothing's wrong with, you know, uh, wanting to obey the law. Uh, we just have to understand that our right standing with God yep. is not based on keeping commands. Mm. It's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you would like to keep the law, like the kosher laws and wearing the tassels or wearing clothes that are only made of one material mm. or uh, the way you garden, you yep. know, and things like that, then you certainly can. I mean, it's great. Um, and uh, But uh, we have to just be careful that we don't, um, you know, confuse things. Yeah. We don't. So, yeah, you know, and, you know, we do do physical ceremonies that point to spiritual truths. Mm -hmm. So that is even common in the church era. So we do do communion, which points to the Passover Seder of the Old Testament. And a, a particular part of the Passover Seder of the Old Testament, meaning the celebration of the Passover that's written in the book of Exodus, mm. our chapter 12, I think it is. Um, so there are physical things that we do do ceremonially that do picture, uh, point to a spiritual implication. Right. And, and yes, so nothing's wrong with ceremony. Ceremony, in a lot of ways... Um, can very much help us in, in, in what we call like uh, canonize, like really imprint a spiritual truth in our lives. That's why ceremonies are so powerful. Right. You know, like marriage is a ceremony. Yeah. A wedding. Yep. It's it's a ceremony, but it points to something greater, uh, a greater truth, and yep. that is the marriage of the Lamb. Yep. Which is Jesus in making him a bride um, and one day he will be united with his bride and it will be awesome right. and so nothing's wrong you know ceremonies are important they have an important place and they point to spiritual things yeah would you say because I, I think the, the main ceremonies you find in modern day church are things that are taught in the New Testament or found I think about communion you know given in the, there by Jesus himself um, marriage of course talked about uh, baptism it's found there as well. So mm -hmm. that's kind of the, the, the big ones that yep. are kind of new in the New Testament. But they're all rooted in the old. Right. So that's what they all are. You're right, though. They're found in the old. They're rooted in the Old Testament. Yep. They're things that we see, um, you know, that Jesus talked about. Right. And we see them implemented even in the epistles. Right. Like the early church. And so those are things that you know, why we practice baptism, why we practice marriage ceremonies, why we practice uh, communion. 
yeah. because we see it taught by Jesus, practiced in the epistles, but rooted in in the Old Testament. Right. Yes. Yeah. Great. Good stuff. Well, thank you. Um, Sui, hope that helps you out. Thank you for that question. Hope that uh, guides you along on that. A question from Renee came in. Uh, it's, it's a little, um, little open and vague, but uh, they ask, what is the best advice and scriptures that I can give a family that is currently having family issues that are unhealthy? And that's the question. So it's a little a bit open, but are there scriptures, a family that's having issues in the family, unhealthy things? Is there any uh, scriptural guidance on how they can deal with that? I guess guidance on how they should be treating each other, approaching these issues. I know sometimes in a family you can have believers and unbelievers, and that becomes very you know complicated in there. But any thoughts? Mm. You know, I guess the the first challenge is it's very rude to enter a home unless the door's been opened for you by those already inside. What I mean by that is if you're going to provide counsel, make sure it's being asked for first unless it's actually uh, making an impact beyond their walls. If, uh, say, for example, something criminal is going on, then you have a moral obligation as a Christian to inform authorities or at least to make sure the parents know that this needs to be addressed or if they're the cause to stop altogether. Uh, If you're in a position where, you know, trusted name in the family and what they're doing is quote-unquote unhealthy, uh, if what you mean by that is they're like not eating well, there's a string of obesity going through the home and you want them to live past 40, then the idea of, you know, just recommending them to exercise, it's, again, a dodgy issue for a lot of people. But the best advice, and Mo, you implement this in the office too, the best instruction is inspiration you want to invite them uh, going on like walks around the neighborhood or something I think that would serve just as much as advice would by setting a positive example and giving them an excuse to pursue something physically healthy if what they're doing is unhealthy in another sense we'd need a lot more information so I'd uh, again respect boundaries uh, regard the role that you have in their life as God's opened the door for you and you've developed a trust there not to just w- start wagging your finger at everything they're doing wrong and not having all the details in mind uh, make sure it's not illegal otherwise yes I, I just call the <laughs> don't police don't do anything illegal oh, and if they're doing anything yes. illegal call the police yes. but uh, that, that would be my advice too is if you mean physically unhealthy then just give them an opportunity or excuse to go to a gym or do some sort of light exercise scripture would definitely note that bodily exercise profits a little and spiritual uh, exercise in every way so just keep those things in mind um that would be all i'd say yeah um it's a tough question because you don't really have much info i wonder if the family is a christian family right Uh, um but uh um, you know, I would just, uh, uh, I, could, I could say this in, in, in full confidence, that, and I think this will help you, and that is you have a whole book of the Bible that is just uh, a book on wisdom, just practical wisdom. Mm. And so w- if we want to help someone um, understand uh, just what the right thing to do is, this is why you would point someone to the book of Proverbs it is because it's a collection of sayings of kind of right sayings, uh, good things. And 
it, it starts off uh, the proverb of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciple, a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair. <laughs> you know, so um, if a family needs to get on the right track and they need to kind of get a foundation going and they don't really know where to start. Sometimes just sitting down as a family and reading through some of the Proverbs together nightly uh, can help everyone understand what the scriptures are teaching. Yeah. Um, and at least they know that, like, hey, you know, this is what we need to learn to do. Hey, I need to walk humbly. I need to learn to confess. I need to learn how to forsake my sin. I need to learn how to, there's so many good things in there. Yep. You know, and so um, I would recommend to any family that's in a rough situation to go to the Book of Wisdom and just uh, start reading it. Yeah, and again, like you say, depending on if they're believers, of course, you know we want to base everything around God's Word and His truth. You yeah, know, how can how can people walk, two walk together if they're not agreed? Yeah, um, and hopefully that's the standard. Same like in a marriage. Well, let's turn to the Word and see what God says about this, but. Um, of course, if they're not believers, they may not have that authority in their life. But again, that's kind of details there. Renee, you're welcome to send, you know, if you want yeah, to expand detail. on that, on what's going on there. And like Sean said, I, I, when I say, when I think unhealthy, I thought more, you know, relationally, but it could quite be a literally unhealthy, yeah. unhealthy lifestyles as far as physically. So, but send us some more details and we, we're glad to kind of open that yeah. up. But, but that's great, Bo. Proverbs. Yeah, of course, yeah. that would apply to, to everything. So thanks, Renee. Um, Question here from Taylor. Uh, he's um, asking for a friend, I think. But uh, his question is: It's a great his mom. Yeah, I didn't want to call her out or anything. <laughs> um, question is: Should Christians attend gay weddings? Should Christians attend gay weddings? This is a great yeah. question. You could expand it to because I love this this discussion of to what point are we loving and you know accepting, and to what point do we draw a line in the sand and say no, I will not be part of that. Where is that line? It's a really interesting topic. Yeah, uh, two parties, two interactions, so four answers. If they aren't believers, or if they are, and if they take away that your support of them is as a believer or as a friend, and the interactions between those four variables matter. So let's start with the first two. Are they unbelievers? And they understand that you're just there as a friend, then absolutely fine what they're doing is just one of the many things that sexually immoral people are going to do and hedonists are going to hedon. Uh, for those of you who don't know, hedonism is a worldview that determines pleasure as what is morally best. So, and that determines most of the things in this world today, even some Christians, unfortunately. I feel this is right, therefore I'm going to do it. The passage I'd use for that is 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 9, where Paul speaking says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Now, if that was the end of it, then we'd just say no in all circumstances, right? But he goes on. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, extortioners, idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. This is what leads us into the second interaction. Are they believers, and you're just coming as a friend? But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. 
Or what have I to do with judging those who are on the outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, and he quotes the uh, book of Deuteronomy here, put away from yourselves the evil person. So in the first situation, if they understand you're coming as a friend, not as a Christian, and if they themselves are not Christians, they don't name the name of Christ, and you shouldn't expect them to be acting like it, then I'd say there's nothing wrong with that. If they call themselves believers, but they're saying, oh, this is, this is a holy hedonist wedding, uh, that's an oxymoron. You need to make sure that they understand that you love them, but this is uh, putting yourself in the First Corinthians 4 category, and they need to be warned that they're going to answer to God for what they've done that rather than uh, just, I guess, uh, following in line with what the culture says. Now, on the other stat with this inverted, if you have people who are coming as Christians to a hedonist wedding, that the ceremonies being performed and they think by you being there see this christian supporting it this shows that we're uh, being endorsed by the church then that would also be something that i'd caution away from because in that sense you are misrepresenting or causing to stumble a brother or and again not the the hedonists in the church we already clarified that but other Christians who are saying you're representing the name of Christ in something that's a literal inversion of what he created here, mm -hmm. and that would be a call for correction, that you would be setting a negative example. Secondly, if you as a Christian are trying to be an ally, to use the modern term, and stand in solidarity as a fellow Christian in the hedonist wedding, then the ultimate rebuke would go back to what God has made in the beginning. <laughs> What is the ideal? And this is not it. And that's the definition of wrong. That's the definition of evil. What is good and not that? So in those four situations, again, you're, a belie you're coming understood as a Christian or you're coming just understood as a friend. That matters. Secondly, do they call themselves Christians or are they just living the way the world does, doing whatever they think is right in their own eyes? The way those interact with each other, three out of four are a no which is why it's such a controversial issue. And there's more factors involved, I know, but the idea is make sure that you're perceived only as a friend and that they themselves are not believers. In every other case, you'd need to have serious conversations with them about this. And it would apply the same if they were living together before the wedding. Uh, if they, um, for example, were a, a little despaired in age, so to speak, that would be any other form, not just homosexuality. Hedonism is the issue here. We're determining pleasure as the reason why you'd be wed, not the reason why marriage was established in the first place. And uh, Bo, I know you have a lot more contact with this world than I do, and I'm on the internet. So what would hmm. your advice be towards people who are put in this situation? I, I can give the logical stuff, yeah, but you, you actually that, have a heart. So. And that, yeah, no, that is great. That is great. Um, you know, uh, you know the the Bible says that whatever's not done in faith is sin, and uh, you know, and we definitely want to do things out of faith in God's word, and and that means there's difficult decisions that need to be made, and and wrestling with things, and praying about stuff, and these aren't easy um, <coughs> issues. Yeah. You know, um, you know the in the Bible. Um, is written in a time where there was a lot of variety 
uh, of marriages um, or, or weddings, different kind of arrangements. And what I mean by that is there was a lot of paganism and a lot of, uh, you know, different views. Christianity held a very, very strict um, idea about marriage. And there's no doubt about it. The early Christians uh, held fast to what Jesus said and that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female. And, um, and, and, and Christianity uh, is writing the back of Judaism that there's one man, one woman for life. That is God's, uh, that's what God intended. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so just as back then they had a lot of distortions going on, we have a lot of distortions going on as well. Um, I think what Sean said is so good, man, because it helps people understand, you know, kind of the context to which you're, you're in, you know, are you a friend? How are, how are you right. viewing this thing? That kind of. Uh, thing and, and like I said, there's a lot to think about yeah. um, when it comes to these kind of decisions. Um, you know, uh, you know, I I look at the scriptures and I just don't see how um, if someone says, "Hey, I'm a Christian," you know, and we're going to do this, how you could go to that uh, wedding? Yeah. Because uh, I would be very burdened in my heart. Yeah. Uh, knowing what the Lord taught about marriage. Um, and uh, what is uh, the real uh, centerpiece of so much theology in the Bible, yep. uh, meaning theology about God right. is wrapped up in marriage, yeah. uh, well, man yeah, and woman. Marriage, yeah. yeah, so there's uh, a lot of times when people talk about marriage, they think of it as just kind of this relational thing on the planet. They yep. don't understand the theological significance of all this. So, But yeah. that's what would burden me. Yeah, it's not like you stop being a Christian, but if you're perceived only as a friend. Yeah. Uh, I'm not talking about your conscience. You'd obviously feel very weird in that situation. Yeah. No, it's a lot of prayer, um, a lot of, you know, seeking the scriptures for yourself, um, yeah. and, you know, knowing what it says, knowing what we've already talked about, um, you know, decisions have to be made. And, you know, I think Jesus made it clear that sometimes, you know, it's true, sometimes... Uh, you know, your, your, even your kids, maybe people might not like you for your decisions yeah. that you're making in the Lord. And I would just suggest that you, if you have to make a tough decision like this, and a lot of us do nowadays, that what you do is you share your convictions with your loved one. Mm -hmm. So whoever's getting married, you know, um, you share, hey, this is what the scripture says, and I'm a Christian. Right. And this is why, you know, I just can't endorse this. Yeah. And and you have to break it down. And they might not listen to you. They might not want to. I don't know. But I think you do the respectful thing and, and share with them yep. that. Yeah. And um, uh, I certainly have had people in my life where I've said no to going to those uh, that kind of an event. Mm -hmm. And 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 they understood why. Um, I'm not sure if they like that, yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, that's a loving and respectful um, thing to do, to have that conversation. Yeah. Instead of just not showing up, you know. 
not a passive aggressiveness. Well, it's, yeah. it, it's, a, it's a weird way to phrase it, but there's a story. I'll be brief because we got another good question here before we sign off. Um, I actually talked someone out of getting married because not of this particular way, but a sexually immoral union. Um, they were a man and a woman, but they weren't believers and they were living together before the wedding, but I was a a childhood friend of one of the people so they asked me if they would perform the ceremony and our policy at the church is you know a couple weeks couples counseling first and so my first session with them was to just share with them the gospel because I'm gonna <laughs> marry you guys I want to make sure you understand the significance of this ceremony the guy was amicable the uh, woman of course she had gone her own way but the funny part was at the end of all of this she came back to me later and said thank you for not just marrying us because we you know called for the elvis impersonator or something because we weren't uh, in this relationship for much more than what you can guess so when it comes to any sexually immoral situation the point of emphasis always needs to be am i representing christ there which is a yeah. given. Yeah. And of course, how am I doing that? Yeah, and we have to think of it too like this, is like, you know, am I comfortable to going to, say, a guy who wants to marry two women, you know? Yeah. Or, or a guy who wants to marry a child. A or guy, a guy who wants yeah. To, yeah. Like, you know, am I comfortable with, you know, a lot of things, you know? And these are big questions. It's like, you know, someone, you know, everybody's not, doesn't feel comfortable and they're convicted against something. So, so for instance, even someone who's homosexually married, they might be against a polygynist or a polygamist kind right. of marriage. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so if someone's getting married like that, they might go, uh, I, don't, I don't think that's right. Yeah. And for whatever reason, they might not think that's right. Yep. And so they don't want to go to that. They have a strong conviction about right. that. Right. And so people, all of us have convictions. And we all have to, in a sense, live together and I think respect each other's convictions mm -hmm. on things. Hey, if you don't want to go to a Christian wedding because they believe uh, one man, one woman for life, and that's what these guys are teaching, and they yep. believe it's a representation of Christ in His church yep. and all that. The man's ahead of the household. The man's ahead of the household. That kind of thing. That's right. Then, it's then very you don't have to, you don't have to go, and you can respectfully decline. Yeah. Hey, I just don't believe that. I don't want to go, but you know, I care for you. I love you, but it it just bothers me that kind of a teaching. Yeah. You know. Right. I would understand. Like you can do that lovingly. Yeah. And. I think we need to learn how to do that in our culture much better. Yeah, you know, but uh, we have to we have to lovingly disagree. Right. Like you know, I don't I don't agree. I love you. I care for you. Um, and those two things can be true. We, we, yeah. 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 They can't happen Strangely. together. You're right. Yeah. You know. And then we'll stand before God with the decisions that we make, like <laughs> yeah. you say, the things oh, we do with faith. Yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah. so uh, yeah. It's uncomfortable because we don't do good in um, loving disagreements a lot of times. Right. Yeah. And so we think everybody needs to affirm um, that's kind of the big yeah. popular thing. Right. Except for me. Yeah. You, you can yeah. shame me for my <laughs> beliefs all day long. Right, yes. right. Yeah. 
Well, one more quick question. Yeah. Yes, if please. Can, yeah, the one from Jerry. Is that yeah, the one yeah, that you're excited fantastic. about? Jerry asks, why do you say, uh, sorry, what do you say to someone who says Jesus never said I am God in human flesh? Bingo. Excellent question. Um, I'll be brief because we got about three minutes, two minutes actually. When it comes to this question, the phrasing is what you have to challenge because they're demanding in those words and committing the fallacy of basically dictation, of setting up a standard that God never laid out for himself, demanding that he conform to it when in any other worldview they wouldn't follow those rules. You can just throw the standard back on them and say, okay, where does he say I'm only a human being in those words? And they could go to passages that would suggest that, but at the end of the day, you can just play the game they're trying to set you up with and say, but he didn't say those exact words, therefore he's not teaching it. When it comes to Jesus' divine claims, what needs to be understood is what makes God God. There are certain things that only God can truthfully say about himself, and Jesus said those things about himself. You can go to before Abraham was, I am. You could know in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. John 5. Yeah, all all those fun (laughs) passages, you know, he's the final judge, the raiser of the dead. They'll hear the voice of the Son of God and live. Has life in himself. Yeah, but my all-time favorite (laughs) is Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17, where Jesus speaking to John the Apostle says, I am the first and I am the last. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Now note, I I was dead and I'm alive forevermore. That's Jesus speaking. That's God the Son, the one that died on the cross. But he first calls himself, ironically, the first and the last. Why? Not because he's got an extensive library collection, but he's making a direct quotation of Isaiah 44 and verse 6 of the Old Testament, which reads, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, besides me there is no God. So, instead of falling into the trap of, he didn't say it in these words he said words that could only truthfully apply to god and he did it a lot that's why i believe that's right he said he said words that would make sense in that time to the people he was talking about Hmm. uh he he wasn't making sense to us in our culture right you know in the sense of what we think he should have said you know kind of thing yeah very good um Renee asked if we could pray for the family. We've kind of run out of time, but Renee, uh, we'll do we will come off the air and I will. we will pause and pray. You have my word on that. Thank you for joining us today on uh, Reason for Hope. Great questions today. We'll be back same time, same places tomorrow for more of your questions. We'll see you then. God bless you guys. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's word. One question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.